By this point in 1 Kings, we have got to know King Ahab pretty well over the weeks. We were introduced to him back in chapter 16, and there we heard about his idolatry. He was committed to worshipping Baal. But God was merciful to Ahab. He gave him a chance to repent of his idolatry. God did that by showing his own power and exposing Baal's lack of power. That happened on Mount Carmel. The prophet Elijah held a contest there with 450 prophets of Baal and the prophets of Baal lost. At that point, Ahab had a chance to abandon his Baal worship, but he didn't. A little later, God was merciful to Ahab again. Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, attacked Israel twice, and both times the Lord gave victory to Ahab's army, even though his army was tiny compared to the vast Aramean soldiers and their weaponry. Well, how did Ahab respond to God's mercy that time? He called Ben-Hadad his brother. He made a treaty with him and he let him go. And last week in chapter 21, we saw God show mercy to Ahab a third time. With the help of his wife Jezebel, Ahab had an innocent man falsely accused and then murdered, just so he could have his vineyard for a vegetable garden. That man's name was Naboth. And the aftermath of that, God sent Elijah to confront Ahab. And Elijah said two things. First, he said, you will die violently, Ahab, and dogs will lick up your blood, just like they licked up Naboth's blood after his violent death. And second, Elijah said, your dynasty will not last, Ahab. All of your male descendants are going to be destroyed. How did Ahab respond to that? We're told he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and fasted, he lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. And in response to that, God said, I will not end your dynasty during your lifetime. That disaster will come after your dad. In other words, God said he would not carry out the second part of Elijah's message of judgment. Ahab wouldn't live to see the destruction of his male descendants. He would be spared that. But what about the first part of Elijah's message? The bit about Ahab's violent death. God didn't say anything more about that in chapter 21. Apparently that is still to be decided. What we know is that when chapter 22 begins... God has shown mercy to Ahab three times. How will Ahab respond to God's latest display of mercy? Well, turn, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 22. That's on page 364. In the church Bibles or in the larger print Bibles, 561. And we're going to read verses 1 through to verse 40. First Kings 22. 
For three years, there was no war between Aram and Israel. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. The king of Israel had said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us? And yet we are doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram. So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First, seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imla. The king should not say such a thing, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imla, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Kenana had made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, The other prophets, without exception, are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead or not? Attack! And be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me but only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing round him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. 
By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Canaan, went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the spirit from the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. Micaiah replied, you will find out on the day you go to hide in an inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, take Micaiah and send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, mark my words, all you people. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone small or great except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him. But when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel and stopped pursuing him. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The king told his chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of the chariot and that evening he died. As the sun was setting, a cry spread through the army, every man to his town, every man to his land. So the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed. And the dogs licked up his blood, as the word of the Lord had declared. As for the other events of Ahab's reign, including all he did, the palace he built and adorned with ivory, and the cities he fortified, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Ahab rested with his ancestors, and Ahaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. This is God's word. Earlier we read Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says, God's word is sweeter than honey. And it can be. When our hearts are in tune with God, when we want what he wants, then his word will be sweeter than honey to us. It will be more precious than gold to us. But very often we don't want what God wants. We want what we want. And when you and I are in that state, God's word does not seem sweet to us or precious. It seems inconvenient. 
And that's what our passage this morning is about. God's inconvenient word. Chapter 22 opens with Ahab realizing something he should have realized three years ago. Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, is not Ahab's friend. Ahab, you remember, had decided to treat Ben-Hadad as his brother, despite all evidence to the contrary, even though Ben-Hadad had come twice with the intention of grinding Israel into the dust. Ahab believed he could make peace with that enemy. And after Ben-Hadad had promised to return the cities he had captured from Israel, Ahab let him go. Well, now it's three years later and it has finally dawned on Ahab, Ben-Hadad has no intention of returning those cities. After he was defeated in battle, he simply said what he needed to say to get Ahab to release him. So Ahab decides to do something about this. And while he's making his plans, he gets a visit from King Jehoshaphat. Remember, at this time, the kingdom is divided in two. Ahab reigns in the northern part, referred to as Israel. And for quite a few chapters, we haven't heard much, really, about the southern kingdom of Judah. But Jehoshaphat is now king down there in Judah. And he comes to see Ahab. Second Kings will tell us that Jehoshaphat's son married Ahab's daughter. So maybe this is a trip to plan the wedding. Or if the wedding has already happened at this point, maybe this is a family get-together. Either way, Jehoshaphat is here, and Ahab asks him to join the expedition to go and reclaim Ramoth-Gilead. It's one of the cities the Arameans had captured and they haven't given back. And apparently, without hesitation, Jehoshaphat says, sure, I'm in, in the middle of verse 4. That's what he means when he says, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. So Jehoshaphat commits himself, and then, having already signed up, he says in verse 5, first, seek the counsel of the Lord. In other words, now that you and I have made our plans, now that you have my agreement, let's ask God about it before we go and do it. So now you see there is an awkward pressure in this situation. Without seeking the Lord's counsel, plans have been made, commitments have been made, and now let's see what the Lord says. Rather than beginning by seeking the Lord's counsel, the pressure is now on to see if the Lord will agree with what's already been decided. Ahab, and to a lesser extent Jehoshaphat, know what they want to do. So it really would be very convenient if the Lord would affirm what they want to do. Verse 6 tells us in response to Jehoshaphat's request, Ahab brings together the prophets, about 400 men. Who are these people? Well, it's not completely clear. They are not called prophets of Baal. In fact, Baal is never mentioned in this whole passage. 
but they are not called prophets of the Lord either. They seem to be a group whose first allegiance is to Ahab. In fact, later on they will be referred to in exactly that way. They are Ahab's prophets. These men are wheeled out when Ahab wants confirmation that what he has already decided to do is the right thing to do. These prophets are the ancient equivalent of cheerleaders. Go, Ahab, go. And in verse 6, Ahab asks them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead? Or shall I refrain? The prophets chant back, Go, Ahab, go. For the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Notice in verse 6, the word Lord is not all in capitals. That means it is not translating the name Yahweh, the personal name of Israel's God. So these prophets have not yet picked up on their cue. The cue that for Jehoshaphat's benefit, they're supposed to be prophesying in the name of Yahweh. They just use a general word for some kind of God. And Jehoshaphat picks up on that in verse 7. He asks, is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Now overall, Jehoshaphat doesn't come out of this whole episode looking terribly well. But to his credit, he doesn't seem convinced by the cheerleading he's seen so far. It's pretty obvious the Lord has not yet been inquired of. Look at verse 8. The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imla. Ahab does not try to hide his agenda. We know he has lived his life in defiance of the Lord. So it's not surprising that the Lord's true prophets haven't had good things to say to Ahab. But what Ahab wants is a conveniently affirming word. He wants prophets who will tell him what he wants to hear. That's what his 400 cheerleaders are for. And if he wants to hear it in the name of the Lord... They're well capable of saying it in the name of the Lord. That's what happens next. While a messenger is sent to get Micaiah, the cheerleaders really give it their all. Look again at verse 10. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Kenanah, had made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Notice, now Yahweh is being mentioned. That's what's being translated by the Lord, all in capitals. The prophets have now realized what's expected of them in this situation. Their main spokesman is Zedekiah, and we have to admit, 
this guy is impressive. He may not be an actual prophet of the Lord, but he knows how to talk and behave like one. He's really got the hang of it. Now, we've seen before how genuine Old Testament prophets often acted out their prophecies as well as speaking them. And Zedekiah acts his out. He even has a great prop, these iron horns that he presumably puts on his head. And he's even slick enough to throw in a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. In verse 11, he seems to be paraphrasing from Deuteronomy chapter 33. That was an earlier prophecy about Israel goring the nations. That really is impressive. A prophet who quotes scripture. How could he be a false prophet? But the problem is the passage he quotes was spoken to God's faithful, obedient people. It was not for those who refused to listen to the Lord. And we already know Zedekiah and his pals are here for one reason only. To give Ahab a conveniently affirming word. Ahab has made it very clear. He hates prophets who say what he doesn't want to hear. These prophets are here to confirm the king's plans, not to question them. That is the arrangement. And because that's the arrangement, the word of these prophets isn't worth toffee. It might make Ahab feel supported. And because they're using the Lord's name now, it might even be enough to put Jehoshaphat at his ease. But the whole thing is a sham. And here's the application for you and me. You and I have to beware of getting in a state where the only word we are willing to hear from God is an affirming word. It is very possible to pray and read our Bibles and listen to the Bible being taught, but to do all of it having already decided in our hearts the only word we're willing to hear from God is a word that confirms what we already think and affirms what we have already decided to do. It is scary how easy it is to fall into that mindset, to slide into it, to have eyes and ears that are only tuned to read or hear supportive words, to have eyes and ears that just filter out anything that confronts us or challenges us. And if that is our mindset, we will find a never-ending supply of books and preachers on YouTube who will give us what we want to hear. Who will tell us, all is well, follow your heart, God is with you. And they'll even cherry-pick Bible verses that assure us of God's support. And there are plenty of those kind of verses in the Bible. But they do not apply to every situation. 
There are plenty of confrontational verses in the Bible too. And in some situations, those verses apply. In the New Testament, Paul wrote this to Timothy. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth. People who will listen, but only to what their itching ears want to hear. And once someone is in that place, they are in great danger. Because they're making a show of listening to God. And they might even convince themselves they are listening to God. But really, they're only listening for what suits their own desires. They're tuning out anything that doesn't suit their own desires. We all have to beware of that danger. And so how do we avoid that danger? How do, what is the way forward for us? Well, if we are not God, and that would be all of us, and if we are prone to wander from God, and that would also be all of us, then we must expect that God's word will challenge us a certain amount of the time. It will make us uncomfortable a certain amount of the time. In fact, Christopher Ashe goes as far as saying this. To sit under the text of Scripture is to be uncomfortable. To sit under Scripture means to genuinely let it have authority over us. Because it is God's Word. It is the way He speaks to us today. And if we are letting God have authority over us, we will let the Bible have authority over us. And living that way will make us uncomfortable. Not all of the time, of course, but a fair amount of the time. Why? Because we are not God. We do not see what God sees. Even at our very best, we still lack wisdom and we lack insight. So even our good intentions will need to be redirected fairly often. And let's not forget, a fair amount of the time we are not even at our best. We want things that are just unwise. And not just unwise, some of the time they're wrong and they're destructive things that we want. And so a fair amount of the time we will need to be rebuked and corrected. To sit under the text of Scripture is to be uncomfortable. If we allow God the freedom to disagree with us, and by that I mean if we are willing to listen even when he disagrees with us, then we will find that his word often challenges our plans and often confronts our desires. 
And let's realize this is not unique to you and me. It's not unique to this particular culture we live in. The Bible challenges every individual and every culture. Certainly the ways it challenges are going to vary. For example, the ways that God's word might challenge our godless society today are going to differ from how it challenged the outwardly respectable society in this country a hundred years ago. Scripture might challenge our culture about its blatant defiance of God. It may have challenged that previous culture about its hypocrisy, putting on a show of honoring God. But the point is, if we engage with the Bible and find it only ever affirms us, then we're probably not really paying attention to it. Or we're reading it very, very selectively. Because when we truly come to God's word with a willingness to hear, we find it to be God's stubbornly inconvenient word. Back in 1 Kings 22, that is what King Ahab discovered. We left the action with Zedekiah and his mates doing their cheerleading. Go, Ahab, go, and the Lord will give you victory. And while that was going on, a messenger, remember, had gone to get Micaiah, the prophet Ahab hates. Look at verse 13. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, the other prophets, without exception, are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. From the very first sentence he speaks, it's clear Micaiah is a different kind of prophet to Zedekiah and all the others. One commentator says it nicely. Micaiah is a true prophet who knows that the word of Yahweh is not his to control. Micaiah is not free to say what Ahab wants him to say. He is bound to say what God tells him to say. If only Ahab could see what a blessing that is. To have one prophet who will tell him the truth. That is infinitely more valuable than having 400 who will tell him what he wants to hear. But Ahab fails to see what a blessing it is. Look in verse 15. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or not? Attack! And be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. 
The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? We've noticed before in 1 Kings, our Bibles don't have notes in the margin telling us what tone people use when they say things. But I think we have to assume when Micaiah begins in verse 15 by telling Ahab what he wants to hear, he says it with pretty thick sarcasm. As if to say to Ahab, I may as well tell you what everyone else is telling you. That is all you're willing to listen to. And that puts Ahab in a very difficult position. He can't very well agree with that. So he insists on the truth in front of everyone. And so Micaiah tells him what will really happen if he attacks Ramoth Gilead. Ahab will be killed. God has just shown mercy to Ahab Again, despite the fact that Ahab doesn't want to hear from God, God has made sure he does hear. Ahab could choose at this point to listen and change his course. But he immediately shows he's not willing to do that. He turns to Jehoshaphat and says, didn't I tell you this guy was useless? He refuses to give me the conveniently affirming word that I want. And so Micaiah goes on in verse 19. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. It's important to see the order of things here. God has told Ahab the truth in verse 17. Micaiah said, if Ahab goes to war, he'll die. Ahab immediately turned away from that truth. And now God says, okay, Ahab, let me tell you something else. These cheerleaders you have, the only ones you're willing to listen to, They are now going to be my instruments to bring judgment on you. God is not setting out some secret, devious trap here. He is telling Ahab exactly what's going on. Ahab thinks it's great to close himself off from God's word. To find 400 prophets who will tell him he's doing fine. But God says, because you love lies, I will use your lying cheerleaders to lead you to destruction. That destruction, God says, will be my judgment on you for refusing to listen to me. In the short term, 
it might very well feel comfortable to shut out God's word. But it is not going to feel comfortable in the long run. If we're only willing to hear things that suit our own desires, God may use those desires to bring judgment on us. He may allow us to be enticed to destruction by our desires. But God is as fair with us as he was with Ahab. He's not keeping that reality a secret from us. It's not a devious trap he's set for us. He has revealed it. He's done that graciously. So we have the opportunity to stop in our tracks and be redirected by his uncomfortable word. Ahab still has the chance to do that here in our passage. God has decreed disaster if Ahab listens to his cheerleaders and insists on doing what he wants to do. And that is what Ahab chooses. He'd rather be told what he wants to hear than listen to what he needs to hear. He has Micaiah thrown in prison. He heads off to Ramoth Gilead and he discovers at Ramoth Gilead that God's word is an inescapably reliable word. When it comes to the battle, Ahab's behavior is strange. He has refused to listen to Micaiah's message. But he seems to be worried it might be true. And so he goes into the battle disguised. He's not willing to listen to God, but he seems to think he can outfox God. If I change my clothes, the Almighty won't be able to get me. But verse 34 says, One of the Aramean soldiers drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his arm. At random means he was shooting at what he thought was a random Israelite soldier. It's not that he pinged off his arrow without aiming at anyone. It means he didn't know he was aiming at Israel's king. But that apparently random shot fulfilled God's very specific purpose. And Ahab died that way as God had warned him he would. It's a pretty sad illustration of a very important truth. We cannot outmaneuver the living God. Human beings have been trying to do it ever since the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, and then they tried to hide from the Lord. It's a favorite tactic of human beings, but it has never worked, not even once. And it never will. God's word is inescapably reliable. Instead of trying to ignore it or outsmart it, the only wise thing to do is listen to it. And allow it to teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness. 
If you and I are truly going to follow God, we will need regular, uncomfortable prods from God's word to redirect us. And we should welcome those prods when they come. Even when they come at times that seem very inconvenient. Even when they call us to make changes in our attitudes and our behavior. Because if the only word we are willing to listen to is a word that says, go on, follow the desires of your heart, then we will end up badly astray in our lives. We must allow God the freedom to disagree with us. We must beware of only listening listening to his word when it tells us what we want to hear. So when we open our Bibles, when we listen to the Bible being taught, let's ask God to make us receptive to the words that seem bitter as well as the words that seem sweet. And as we come to Scripture with that willingness to receive and to be changed, then over time, we will find that even the uncomfortable bits become sweet to us. They become more precious than gold to us. Why? Because we can see they are leading us away from death and into the paths of life. Life in all of its fullness. Life in God's new heaven and earth. That's where God wants to take us. Into lives that are in conformity with his son. That's why God prods us and makes us uncomfortable. So let's praise God for his inconvenient word. Our next song helps us to do that. It reminds us of the good work God does in our lives through the scriptures. They are powerful in making us wise to salvation.